Thursday, March 24th, and this is episode 58 of Tumble Vision with special guest Salona Bonewald of Coding Tumbling Greatness. Today we talked about open source environments and how you can make them better. And Kevin, we also talked about how to avoid poisonous people. <laughs> and Debs, what else are we talking about? What's going to last longer, Lady Gaga or Facebook? <laughs> and Salona? How important it is to make events fun to encourage more people to come. Hey, everybody! It's Tumble Vision, episode 58, with special guest Salona Bonewald. And it's not just a name in a Harry Potter book, she's actually here. Another gold, you're. Host from Toronto this week, and your other co-hosts, Kevin Marks. Hi there, from San Jose. And Deb Schultz. Hello, from rainy San Francisco. And this is Tumble Vision, which is a weekly salon-style podcast about how to connect and create a world that puts people at the center of everything, business, tech, and culture. Every week, we we explore different aspects of tumbling with some of the most interesting people we can find creating this new way of living in the world. And what is tumbling? I know that's what you're asking, and I will tell you. It's a Yiddish word. Tumbling literally translates as noisemaker. Tumblers it's a job to be a tumbler where comics like me or, or uh, other kinds of performers who are hired at weddings to not only entertain, but to encourage other people to dance at weddings and to get other people involved in the show. And so uh, it is a useful word tumbling in a world. Like how do you operate in a world that's, in a, that's networked, you know, that where command and control doesn't operate anymore. Well, you need to tumble. See, we needed a word for it and that's what we came up with. So here we are, our, human and uh, expanding networked selves intersect here at tumblevision.tv, a new perspective on social engagement. Now, first we'd like to get into some of the stories of the last week, things that have come up that we think are pertinent to this kind of way of living. And uh, what's been hot? Well, Kevin, you were very enamored of Marissa Meyer. First of all, Lady Gaga went to the Googleplex. So what does that mean? I mean, the fact that the biggest superstar in the world, in terms of the biggest name in entertainment, feels the need to go and visit the center of the networked world is pretty interesting in and of itself. I mean, don't you think? I think I think it's, it's the YouTube connection. That's, you know, Lady Gaga is the most downloaded person ever on YouTube. Um, so clearly that's the, that's the connection for her to Google. But it was it was fascinating watching um, Marissa Marissa Meyer interv- interview Lady Gaga just because of the sort of and maybe explain a little bit about Marissa so people know who she is. So and- so, so, so I'm, I kind of assume our audience our audience um, probably does. Marissa, but you Marissa never Meyer know. was um, VP of, of of search and user experience for, for Google at Google for like ten years nearly. Um, and is now focused on on mobile stuff. But she she was um, she, she's um, very high profile exec at Google. Um, spent a lot of time working on um, the UX stuff and being the sort of um, deciding voice for that a lot of the time. Um, and is now very focused on mobile and search. And she's 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 very very geeky, but also into fashion and stuff. Um, so it was it was just a fascinating juxtaposition watching the, watch the the two of them there because um, they're they're both very you know very individual powerful women 
um, but coming from very different worlds. And it, it was, I, I really enjoyed the conversation. I thought it was very good. And why did you think it was so important that for us to, to have a Tamil vision? Um, I thought the, the Tamiling part is, 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 is Lady Gaga. She's, you know, she is clearly a Tamil par excellence. The way she um, relates to people and gets them, gets them talking back to her. And that, the, the, the thing that made it, made it charming was that they, um, the questions that Marissa was asking were drawn from people who'd asked them on YouTube, who'd, who'd gather, who they'd gathered them in that way and they were being um, fed into it that way. So there was this sort of, um, Marissa had questions there where she was very carefully reading out usernames and saying, you know, there's people's handles and then they were playing the video into it. And it, it, was, it, was, it was fascinating watching, watching Marissa Mayer trying to do the, the, the tumbling thing, which isn't her natural mode at all, um, and Gaga being I, very much in that. I saw Marissa at South by for a second, but I think seriously... I need to. I need to get her an unpresenting. I need to do a little tumbly class with Marissa. I could get her to do it for well, sure. Gaga is completely an incredible. And if you want to, in the the common generational debate, Madonna or Gaga, uh, and I'm certainly from Madonna's generation. Gaga is much more of a tumbler. I'd say that's totally. the night difference between the two of them. Yeah, I would totally agree with that, Heather. I mean, Madonna was much was about Madonna, um, and Gaga is about herself and. Right, as she brings right. in everybody. To me, to be snarky for a minute, just looking at the interview was interesting because you had Marissa, who looked, who isn't, but looked incredibly sort of dowdy and Stepford wife-ish next to, in what she was wearing. And well, the who blush. does not? Who, who right. can what, right. look dowdy next to Gaga? Right, but but, 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 but also, that's the other interesting juxtaposition because Marissa is normally, you know, right, the glamorous woman in the geeky center. Right, you know, exactly. So that was the really interesting juxtaposition. I mean, Salona, you've probably, your world's pretty steampunk and costumey. Do you feel like you're, you can go head to head with Lady Gaga? Yeah. It's like, this is relevant. It's like, oh yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Oh, I totally would. If I knew that I was like interviewing her, I would just go all out. No, I think, yeah. I think it's it's smart. My outfits on the internet. Yeah, I think it's smart that Marissa didn't try to because, you know, better, but because, but you know, she wouldn't have succeeded. But the other thing that, I, you know, Kevin, you didn't mention, which I loved, which was very tumbly like and gives an insight into Lady Gaga was how the first question that Mar- – first of all, it was great that Marissa, as you pointed out, treated every question and the user handles as precious. That said a lot to me. Um, so even though she might not have the unpresenting skills, she knew enough to realize there's a human being behind that, you know, the, the ridiculous username she had to read out. And the first question that they brought up was from a fan who basically said, you know, Gaga, you always say that no one ever asks you, how are you today when they interview you? And, you know, Gaga went into sort of why that's important for her because she, she very often thinks that people sort of forget that there's a person there and that we forget often how important it is to just look at the person in the eye and say, how are you doing today? And I thought that was just fascinating and an example of how that's, she's completely not Madonna-esque just by even saying that. So I thought that was really telling in the interview. Okay. But she honestly so, did get choked up during it too. Yeah, she did. And About? I, uh, yeah. Salona, what did she get choked up about? Um, the little girl asking that question of her. Yeah. And showing that much love and concern. Um, what was the question? Her, how, are, how are you doing today? Uh, normally people don't ever ask you, how are you doing today, and mean it. And she says, I'm asking it, and I mean it. 
Sweetness. Yeah, yeah. real human connection. That's what artists... Hopefully, everybody's going to be all about. So, so continuing with what's up this week, we have a new app, a new social app that got a lot of attention. In the Valley. That didn't <laughs> launch at South by Southwest. Color. Uh, that got funded at a ridiculous level. $41 million. We're in a bubble. I can't believe that somebody that, that people invested $41 million bucks in a not even launched app. I don't understand what in the technology requires that much money. It can't possibly. It can't. They say hiring engineers. (laughs) Great. (laughs) (laughs) But but that was the logic. Well, the the logic, having read a little bit of it, they they had a fairly generous chunk of funding to begin with. They had like nine million um, or something. And then they met with Sequoia and Sequoia said, would you like $25 million? Um, and I suspect this is Sequoia is used to being making the big investments because they were they were they're the old school VCs that used to invest in chip companies and things and not really set up to give people small amounts of money. So I suspect that may be part of it. And also they wanted to make a splash because they are being upstaged by the Angels and um, the other companies that are, that have actually realized that you don't you don't need that much money it's, to build a company. And this well. app is a move towards the automated cloud web where everything goes up geolocated almost automatically, am I right? But we've had yeah. that forever. Yeah, we have. Yes. I did an application for, for Docomo in 99. <laughs> but for the for an average person, like for a regular civilian, have they had it? Well, uh, yeah, well, it's what they're, what they're trying to do is they're trying to make it such that you take photographs and it naturally forms clusters of people who are photographing the same event. So they're That's, trying to use the technology to tumble the people by saying, we're going to group you by events and that's going to give you this social thing in common. Yes. Yes. Well, you, by they're location. trying to automate the tumbling piece. Yes, by location, though, I wouldn't say necessarily by event. So the idea is you can meet your neighbors. You know, it's uh, what's the, the technology term du jour, like sort of passive geolocation networking. But, but, but Foursquare passively shows you in this, who's in the same restaurant as you. It doesn't do anything to make it easier to meet those people. That would be the real tumbling piece. And I think the, I think the platform could support people doing that. Is color, I haven't used it yet, help you go and connect people? Or is it supposed to connect you by itself or neither? Um, I, it, I, I haven't. Well, I tried using it, but I'm at home and there's nobody else using it, so it doesn't really work. Um, it's <laughs> very damn, should have gone to San Francisco today. That, but uh, there right. is the first, but that's the first issue, right? That's the, right. right. So, so we're taking something technology can do. I mean, Salona, tell us your take. It looks to me like technology knows how to group it, get everybody's location on their mobile thing. Delightful. Okay, it's a nice little technical trick to do. But do people want that? Like, is it? Is it? Is it making people eat a technical thing solution that isn't what they're actually looking for? Or is there a way to make this really serve a, a human need? Um, in, in regards to the picture aspect, um, you know, the, we did this app with um, Bmania, which is a company, with the, which is a consulting firm that I was in in the late 90s, where we did this app basically for Japanese schoolgirls with their cell phones where they could literally take a picture of, of themselves and immediately upload it to a website. Um, and we were doing it for Docomo. And they, yeah. And so to me, it's just kind of like, uh, wow, this sounds really similar. But I... It is one of those things where if you're being hyper-social and you're trying to, to um, show something right then and there, it's useful. 
Um, in a larger scale, I, I, I don't know. I'd have to see some implementations. I mean, I can sit there and see some things that would be interesting, like um, you're all at a restaurant and you all take pictures of your food and you can all look at each other's food and decide what you want to eat, maybe. Um, but uh, I think it could end up being extremely intrusive, too, if you haven't turned your settings on the correct levels as well. So I don't know. Huh. Okay. All right. Well, we'll see what's going to happen. Gaga's first name, uh, by the way, someone wants to know what's, what's her name. Her actual name is Stephanie. It's a G. It's a long Italian name from Christina the upper, upper East Side of New York. That's her background. Uh, yeah, because we're going to work Lady Gaga into the show as much as possible. So far, <laughs> Lady, if I had to choose between the Colors app and Lady Gaga on Tumbling, I'm choosing Lady Gaga for the moment. <laughs> Um, I have to admit I'm with you. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I can't remember the last time I sat through an hour and 20 minutes interview. And I Me sat too. Me too. Um, I sat through the whole thing. I, that's yeah, really, I couldn't believe I, it. it. It totally shocked no, me it, that it, I actually it, sat through it. it. It drew me in. It really did. Okay. I would recommend watching it. I, highly... but, I mean, that is, that is one thing I miss a lot about being at Google is that the tech talks there are really good. Um, because they they have it such that if someone's coming to the Bay Area to to give a talk somewhere else, they'll they'll get them to come by Google as well and and give the talk there and give them lunch or if they're an author they'll buy a hundred copies of their, of their book so they'll they'll make their stop on the book tour. So yeah, that they was... bought me lunch. That was enough for me. I enjoyed the lunch. <laughs> so that was that was one of the attractions for for me of being at Google was that that they have a really good talk talk series going on. God, um, I mean, it wasn't the plane in the lobby. Anyway, <laughs> let's 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 move on. So there's been some more gender news this week uh, going on that is always relevant because essentially, um, tumbling is a pretty feminine. Not they have to be female to do it skill, but it's relational. Which hopefully we're starting to hit an era in which um, that's going to tip to being both. Everybody is going to deal with it. We've got a, a glass ceiling report that's come out saying men have the majority of jobs in media. Wow, that's really shocking. I'm shocked by that, just utterly shocked. And uh, we've also had um, a piece on TechCrunch written by an investor who goes into a great deal of detail about um, a female VC. Uh, there are a few of them. Talking about the degree to which the social web, like when you crack down the numbers of it, is really dominated by women in terms of usage, which is true. Like the majority of usage of major apps, the time people spend on some of these apps and the social gaming. Um, and that's true, although none of these companies like Zynga or Facebook have women on their boards but uh, or as major designers of their companies. But that is true. There's a, there's a real dominance. And I think this is because... Uh, social things or women are just socialized to do that stuff earlier. And we're, these are skill sets that women have more strongly. That's my sense of things. I don't know. Solona, what do you think? Why women are dominating usage of the social web? Um, I think women are dominating usage of the social web because of the fact that for the most part, women can multitask better than men. <laughs> and so, especially when things, Things um, are a little less. I know a lot of people end up being able to get on there and do little bits at, at different times all the time. And so I think that's one reason why women have been so into adoption of it. Especially, um, I've been hanging a lot with my with the computer game that I'm doing um, for children. I've been hanging a lot with the mom and dad bloggers. And that's definitely a, a large topic among a lot of a lot of 
a lot of the mom bloggers is the ability to asynchronously network and get stuff done. Right. Right. So, well, that, so why do you think we don't see more women other than with Flickr having massive roles in creating the social, like the, the big well-known platforms of the social web? Because, um, uh, there's a reason I went and registered women in VC. I actually had an argument not too long ago with a guy that I'm dating. Who's also VC about, he was trying to argue that there's 30 women, 30% of women in VC. And I said, nah, I'll give you 10. And then I went, looked it up and it was eight. And then I was doing some other research and found out that out of the 1 million new jobs this year, 47,000 went to women. And while it was being called the man session, it was two thirds layoff men, one third layoff women. And then I was sitting there thinking about the whole BC thing and all the women that I know who do startups. And I realized um, none of them had gotten BC, that they had all either bootstrapped or done friends and family. And then I was out at even more as to, well, how does all this occur? And I think it has a lot to do with risk aversion yes. where women are more risk averse. And, um, I haven't, you know, I haven't been able to sit down and do a study on it, obviously, or find a study that, um, highlights this. This is just my hypothesis, but I think that, um, we're not encouraged to risk as much as men are even just growing up thinking of my own, you know, and I, I'm about as geeky as they get. And even then, you know, I was still taught to be more cautious, uh, than I think guys are. And so therefore there's not as many women out there going in, throwing themselves at these crazy projects and even Flickr, um, you know, they were trying to create something else. <laughs> they were making a game and, they, and, and it showed up, but the, did, but the tumbling in the design of Flickr, you know, mm-hmm. had George Oates and Katerina and Heather Champel had a lot of impact on it, I think was one of the smart i still think Flickr is the best social platform on the web in terms of it's designed for people that's my personal and feel and i agree with you and what it says to me also is it's not about the features or the functionality so only it's a piece of it but the tone was set early on and the culture and norms of that community have lived even as it's gotten into the big yahoo world so it, it to our point of tumbling being a human skill and the softer, quote-unquote, human sides of things, they have benefits that last a lot longer than this feature or that feature. Once you set the tone for a community, it can have legs. Not always, but it can. Right. And Kevin's giving us individual women at different places. True, Mina Trot, can't forget her, sort of early first Yeah, I my, give her big props and Meg my, her my so it's not that there are individual women now. I'm just thinking of the new kind of. Uh, no, no. I, th- I think women are, are disproportionately things. not funded, but that succeed better. That you know, there's, there's this um, get the, this sort of inverse thing now, which is um, if you if you find a woman in tech, she will be disproportionately brilliant because she's had to find <laughs> so hard to get there. The Ruth um, Ginsburg effect. Yes. <laughs> Is what I like to call it. Like, I know Betty Friedan always said, well, have equality, not when the female Einsteins, you know, get treated like Einstein, but when the female Schlemiels get treated like the male Schlemiels. <laughs> um, I don't know if that was her term, but that's the term I'm going to get to throw out there. Wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> so, okay. So um, now, Sloane, you've worked on a bunch of open source projects there, I believe. Am I right about that? Uh Yes. And there were a couple of interesting pieces this week, one by Vittorio Miliano, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, Vittorio, about 
designers and women in open source. And, and interestingly enough, which I love this approach, uh, and, and we've got Tom Vanderwall here in the chat room with us, which is nice. So tell me what you think, Tom. But he basically takes this universal design approach, which is kind of what I was doing when I was in law school, um, and say, okay, yeah, we have these problems with the way women are treated in open source. But if you really look at it in a universal way, it's because everyone who's not a coder and who's not a certain kind of coder is having the same problem. You're not able to design an inclusive enough environment. That's the problem. So people who aren't, you know, you're not getting designers, you're not getting UX people contributing enough. You don't have an environment and a kind of, uh, to me, open source is like a big tumbling and ongoing question I have because it's miraculous to me as someone who doesn't, has never worked on one, that these projects happen. Uh, and I'm interested in who's actually tumbling or if that's happening in them and what I'm searing from Vittorio's critique. And then it's backed up by Gina Trapani, who put another piece up there uh, today on smarterware.org talking about the same thing. Um, what they're both pointing at is what we call it creating conditions, you know, uh, it's something that they really need that, that a tumbler does. A tumbler isn't aiming to literally only talk to each person and make each connection. You can't, it's not practical. That's why we technology makes, you know, all kinds of automates things for that to happen. But we, but you set a kind con- of tone and a condition and you nurture that so that it's more likely for things to happen humanly. Do you, do you think that that's right, Solano, what Vittorio is saying, that it's it's kind of a bigger thing than just about gender? It's sort of a, it, and, and if it is it's such a big problem, how is it that these open source projects actually work with this problem? I think a lot of it, especially in... Re- um, one of the best tumblers I've ever seen in the open source community is Carl Fogel, um, the guy who basically invented subversion. And he did a great book on creating open source communities. And on that, he actually talks more about... What's the name of the book? Do you know? We'll link to it on the, on the uh, site. If you don't know, yeah. we'll find it. If, if you're listening, it, go to... Go, if, if you ever it's hear a reference in the show... Producing open source software. Yeah, pro- yes, producing open source software. Just letting everyone Fogel. know, if, you, if you're interested in a reference it's made, we'll link to everything on the site. So go, so, so you're talking about Carl Fogel. He's the awesomest tumbler. Yeah. Salona and and so what happens? Oh, go ahead. Don't wait for you. Um, so what happens a lot of times in the open source communities is things get really wrapped up in regard to mediocrity. Um, you know, basically not not things being mediocre in case people mispronounce my my pronunciation, but instead of things being based off of merit. And there's a lot of inherent judgment that goes on in regards to that. So a lot of the gals that I see um, are kind of like me and have a touch of the Aspie in that we kind of don't notice. (laughs) I I like how affectionate (laughs) it is from you. It's like a cute little thing. (laughs) I love that too. It's sort of sweet. Touch of the Aspie. Top of the morning to you. You don't always notice Things. Would that be a, with a Y or an IE? <laughs> exactly. It sometimes misses certain social cues, you know, and so it, it's it's not. Um, it, it is very judgmental. It is very harsh. Um, I would assume that a lot of the people are also NTs in regards to the Meyer Briggs, um, and so that is not something that I think most women are taught growing up is this whole just, you know, sticking to the different facts, laying those out and arguing for them. And so I think that's one part that does end up being really harsh 
in regards to open source. And you do get some of the Aspies that aren't quite so nice, um, especially who are actually, I think, mean. Um, I've definitely seen some of those in, uh, in, and it's tough in regards to dealing with that and you don't have so, to deal with it. So as much. how is it in that environment that those projects still get done given how crappy the environment is? Um, I think the majority of guys don't care and it kinds of, and a lot of that like goes back to sports. Even when you're playing on a sports team with a guy you can't stand, uh, it doesn't matter because it's just on the field and the national field. You don't have to be nice to them. You don't have to do anything along those so lines. How, but how is just practically the tumbling happening? How are people still getting the, the information or the splitting or the connecting to happen if there's such social friction? Um, I think you have somehow, I've, one thing that I find in regards to ones that do survive is somewhere you do have a documentation person. And I think that's one reason why some of those do better than others is because at some point they do get some of the documentation stuff done. The ones that I see that really don't, that end up staying really small are that there are, there are a lot of robust open source communities that don't have very many members. Um, and you don't hear about them very much because all the members are super dedicated. They are all, it's incredibly incestuous. They don't go out much, um, but they get a fair amount done but they don't figure out the documentation portion. So they never end up getting the, uh, well, the I think other... To some extent, the documentation portion comes when you try to scale it because you get fed up with telling people the same thing over and over again. And so you write an FAQ. This is, this is the sort of, I suppose, the, the programmer stroke Aspie way of dealing with things is you, um, okay, I will write down a process to explain things to you so I don't actually have to talk to you. Um, right. And I, actually, I suppose... Um, the, the, the microformats process document that the Tantec wrote is, is possibly a good example <laughs> of that because that is very much like, okay, you want to make a microformat? Well, don't. Do this thing first, then do this, and then do this. And it's actually, it's actually really good advice, and it's actually quite well written. But it, it, um, the, the to- I, can, I can see the tone of it could be, could be, could be seen as off-putting. <laughs> could be. Yeah. So, being so this, well. these ideas by Victoria and, uh, and Gina about trying to design inclusively in general as not just thinking about gender but thinking about how are we going to make this a kind of place anyone can help with including a ux person including designers what do you think could be done on an open source project to make that more more likely solana i mean is that something you've been looking for like why don't we have five designers in this project well, it was kind of funny that I got in trouble because I was actually, uh, I did propose the title for South by Southwest last year, which was Hot Babes of Open Source. And um, what? Did, it get, did it get, it didn't get accepted? No, I would I like told, to see I, that. I was told that it was sexist. And I was like, well, I think that's funny because we're all going to choose ourselves to be hot babes. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not like I'm actually going to let you judge. And more of the point, it was actually going to be talking about, you know, women in open source and how few of us that there are and why and things of that nature. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, that that definitely touches on some of those different pieces. I kind of, I like a lot what uh, Shuttleworth um, has been trying to do with a lot of his stuff, where honestly, he's thrown a lot of money at <laughs> Please explain. Please explain. Who is this? Um, Mark Shuttleworth. Yeah, explain what he's doing. Um, Go ahead, ahead, Solon. Tell tell the story. Um, So with Mark, what he's got is he's got... And what he went and did with Ubuntu is 
I swear, setting up an Ubuntu an Ubuntu box now, if it's the hardware and the drivers are all good, is the easiest software setup I've ever seen. So making Great. the process from the beginning. So he thought about user experience himself. Awesome. Yes. Yes. Yeah, Which is was, not usually the case when open source comes together and, and, you know, you're just expected to sort of jump in and start coding kind of thing and not worry about the peripherals. And the, well, and well, the, more than that, there's, the, there's almost a sort of a rite of passage run the gauntlet thing with, right. with open source. So right. getting Linux up and running used to be like, well, of course you have to type in 25 different things and do this and do that. And, and if you can't do that, you shouldn't be talking to us. Um, and what, what Shuttleworth did with Ubuntu was say, no, no, we need to be able to give this disk to somebody. They put it in the computer and it boots and they've got a user experience that's better than they had on, before on Windows. And he threw enough money at um, the Ubuntu Foundation to encourage people to do that. Which is great. You know, it brings up a very, very specific example. When I was in my first techiest job, you know, working with a bunch of systems integrators, and this relates to the women-men thing, I remember specifically going to a boss of mine and saying, okay, I'm basically kind of switching careers, going to be with a whole bunch of geeks. So, you know, but I'm not as techy as they are. Um, so what are your suggestions, right? He's my mentor. And she's like, well, the thing that you need to do is in your first month there, that's your grace period. So ask as many questions as possible. And then once you've sort of know the lay of the land, then you can sort of jump in and, you know, establish what you do, you know, et cetera. So ask questions first, worry about it later, which I did. And started to realize that I wasn't getting the respect that I thought I deserved among this team of all men. All men, heavy coder, you know, enterprise geeks. This was a job I had for a year and a half, that was about it. <laughs> and then I watched a peer of mine come in a month later, a guy. And what he did when he came in was sort of postulate and talk about all the things he knew for the first month and establish himself and then afterwards start asking questions. And it was a very glaring, fascinating cultural lesson for me that how different environments and different gender-specific environments and different in tech and others can really change the way you're viewed. So I came in and they assumed I was a know-nothing, Right. Versus in another community, they would have thought, oh, good, she's smart, she's new, she's asking questions. But I immediately was put on a lower tier, whereas he came in and just postulated the stuff that he did know and was treated completely differently. So that gauntlet that you're talking about sounds like a very mm. big part of, of proving yourself. So I'm not surprised that some people felt that, you know, that was good and other people felt like, no, man, I had to go through that tough stuff. You should too. Right? Well, I, I understand that the thing is, is just like, like you're saying, Sloan, if you're on playing a sports together, you're like, what's the goal? You want to win the game. So what's the goal of the project? You want the project to happen. And if the project needs people with soft skills or other skill sets, design skills, UX skills, what have you, um, then how are you going to make it such that they can be there and work on it? I would think would be maybe the way to state the problem. But the, the, the other thing is that there's, there is this tolerance for... Um, ridiculously rude people in the tech community um yes. and that is and, and this, this is a combination of things it, it is partly perhaps what sony was saying is we have we have more people who are um on the asperger's autism spectrum who got, who literally cannot relate to people very well but are very good at understanding machines and so there's a certain amount of tolerance for you know in some ways you could look at it as tolerance of neurodiversity but what it means is they don't get socialized properly um and and then it becomes a you know Plus, there is the other thing with programming projects is you do have the test of does this, does this thing actually work as a um, as a meter that you can then use. So you can rely on that rather than um, re get, rely on people 
actually debating what should work. So there's this sort of running code trump, trumps other things. So if you if you if you um, can show that you've got code that does something, that that can um, beat out debating whether you should have written the code in the first place. All right. Well, well put. So, Salona, what do you think? <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know what to say. I know. It's, I, it's all over my nerdalicious head. Um, yeah, it's nerdy, yeah. That's so, okay. The thing, Salona, you're, you're, I don't know if open source is your main thing. Or you're really, you're very focused on making the world better. I mean, I think of you as very focused on identity, privacy, world betterment, and all of those things, I guess, need open source solutions for them to get uh, sustainable solutions. Yeah. Well, that's the funny thing is that, um, in my opinion, I'm actually quite new to open source. I did like uh, have Linux on my servers for my ISP in '96, but I didn't really get into doing open source work until 2004. Uh, before that, all of my software development from '88 on was proprietary. Um, so in my, you know, for, so for me in regards to my identity, I've never, I hadn't really, I started identifying in regards to open source until 04 when I started doing all the open government stuff and I realized, oh, these systems have to be open for them to be trusted. Um, my first love is what I call open data, which is basically, you know, um, making the data free and open. And that's why I started doing the whole citability which is, you know, taking the data, putting it on the internet, and making it citable to a granular level. Can you know to not for a non-geek? And citability is c i t a b i l i t y dot org. For a non-geek, what does that mean? Why is data important? Why is open data important? That may sound so obvious to you, but someone who doesn't code will be like, I don't know what that means. Why do I care? Well, to me, it, the main thing is about it's all about um, the scientific process. And to do real science, one of the things you have to do is be able to test and retest. And if you can't see what people have done and how they got there, then you can't trust it. And so data is the same thing in regards to that. So making sure that not just the program is open, but also the data behind it. Um, I think it's really important to being able to trust things. You know, like sitting there and accepting the number of you know, we spent, you know, so many millions of dollars on a war in Iraq. I would much rather see, I, I'm like, uh, give me the entire budget. Because <laughs> I'm not going to believe those numbers until I sit there and I see the entire budget and where all the different money went as to whether or not, or not I believe that we spent X amount of dollars. So how do we know that what we are knowing is true? Exactly. Validity. That's, that's pretty basic. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I, right. I don't believe you, you have validity unless you get to actually check those numbers. Probably. Lies, right. so, damn lies, statistics. Oh, God. <laughs> so, is cite- un- black budgets, yes. Is citability where most of your time is going now? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> She's such a multitasker. It's just like I can't imagine any one thing. <laughs> The answer, Solana. A lot of my. What are the things that you're most impassioned about at the moment? I mean, what is is it? Citability. What else? Citability. um, I'm organizing a whole bunch of different um, codathons for doing the different uh, uh, 
with working with citability and the open data. So we're talking about doing one with the DOE for energy, another one with the health and human services for healthcare data. And I've even got an interesting conversation happening tomorrow with some music publishers about music data. No. Music Can you believe that? That's what happened at South by Southwest this year. Can you believe that it's Excellent. more that we're living in a world where I, I, it's more acceptable for the government to use open data than the music industry? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's pretty funny because the, the music industry guy, you know, he said I gave him shivers. So, um... <laughs> well, is that about the data, Solana? <laughs> really? It was. It was. I swear. I... <laughs> Solana, when you do a codathon, um, what are some of the things you think about putting together? Um, when I do a codathon, uh, it, you know, I did my first one in 05 and everybody t- told me that I was nuts for even attempting to do one because things like, um, sprints had been done before with open source programmers, but it was normally with an already created open source team. What was and the, what's a sprint? A sprint is something that they do in agile programming, which, and they work really, really hard over a weekend to try to get something accomplished, a very specific task. And I'd done codathons, you know, I'd done things like uh, codathons in the gaming industry previously. And so I sat there and I said, you know, well, I think I can do this with open source software. Um, and uh, and actually, uh, it was um, uh, it was the way that I ended up doing it was for creating it. Is it has to be um, it had to be open source, it had to be sponsored by a nonprofit entity so that that would hopefully give it legs, and it had to be a generalized solution. And then the things that we did before that is um, we did a lot of design work ahead of time on the wiki so that the programmers knew exactly what it was that they were going to come in and start programming. So sort of setting the expectations ahead of time, getting people to do. The, do these people know each other before they get in the room? No, a lot of them don't. <laughs> And that, and that brings out giggles because what, what tends to happen? Um, so you can see I'm, we're trying to get back to the tumult piece here, right? Um, the stuff that you probably do naturally without realizing you're doing it. Yeah, what are you doing when they come in the room? Like, what do you do? Um, well, one of the things that I do at the very beginning is I do a lot of work long, long before the codathon starts where I do purposely look for a lot of different people and go, you will work with them together. And then I sit there and I'm like, and I take the nonprofit that I think will work the best with them and I'll put them all together and get them started on a wiki. And, <coughs> and then I'll go do this similar thing. And so I do a lot of gathering and recruiting of programmers and designers in the community. When I do a codathon, I do a lot of work in advance where I always have a team leader. I always have a team designer and I have a nonprofit representative. And they typically, by this point, have a good vision as to what it is that they want to do. And they believe it's a weekend-long project. And then there's tons of uh, additional programmers who come in with no real expectation as to what project they're going to work on at all. And I shuffle them over into the different projects that I think they'll mesh in the best with. Is there and how a way? do you tell, how do you make the decision how they're going to, this person will work for, well for this project? Uh, normally, honestly, the majority of those people I've, you know, brought into the, into the codathon ahead of time. So even though I'll have like a hundred or something people, I will know almost every single person there. 
And is there is there some sort of like your mind does this quick calculation of this person, this coder will go well with this designer because X? Yes, a lot of times it's mainly off of um, the first one I did was really chaotic because I was allowing them to do whatever languages they want. And so they ended up automatically dividing off for that reason. Um, you know, the Perl programmers went with the Perl programmers, you know, the PHP programmers with the PHP programmers, that sort of thing. Um, the next one that I did was Drupal only. And, um, then it was basically a lot of it was also where they were really into. And so they ended up dividing themselves out that way as to, um, everybody at the very beginning announces their projects. And then from the audience, they all decided who they wanted to go and work with. Got it. So you let, you let them pick, but you give them a chance to get to know each other a little bit. Yes. And oh, and with my codathons, there's a lot of social stuff that happens. And I purposely make them take breaks at, um, at, at mealtimes and such where I have crazy entertainment. If you go and like look it up on YouTube, um, it's kind of nuts what I do at my codathons. Like I had a ice cream antisocial where I had a people, a bunch of punk rockers come and give shout insults at them while they gave them ice cream. <laughs> Are you serious? That's hysterical. Yes. Or, or I had a, um, martini and rampage that- at midnight where, you know, a whole bunch of people showed up and gave everybody one martini and left. Or I've had like zombie rampages show up at four o'clock in the morning when a whole bunch of people show show up at four o'clock in the morning. This is how zombies. you mix your your costume steampunk life with your performance life with your coding life. So it's it's, a, it's yeah. so it's actually performance art codathons. <laughs> it's performance well, they're art. Codathons. They're, they're they're not allowed to be more than fifteen minutes total. That's okay. I was just envisioning, though, that we finished describing the fact that all the folks in the room have Asperger's and aren't very socially adept, and then you bring in some punk rockers to yell at them. So, <laughs> what they thought it was that? awesome. I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did. That's great. Do you, do you distinguish your codathon from what people call hackathons these days, or is it really the same? Well, it's kind of funny because, you know... First in 06, and I purposely and I thought about calling them hackathons, but then with the nonprofit entities, I'd, I decided that that wasn't probably appropriate. Right. And so instead, I called them codathons. Um, and so it's kind of funny now in that I've noticed when at, normally when people are focused on doing a code or something with nonprofits, oftentimes they'll say codathon, while if they're just doing it themselves, they'll say, say hackathon. Interesting. Um, before that, like I said, um, I, I've gone and Googled on it and such, but um, before that, most things were called sprints. Uh, bef- so, yeah, and the, the a-thon portion is just because I made them do it for 48 hours at the first time. <laughs> wow. 48. Lovely. Yeah. 100-something yeah, yeah. with the, yeah. That's, so that's what's, what's your, I want to know more about Open Bank. Open yeah. project. Please tell me this involves making banking suck less. It did, and it was like it was a really weird project that occurred, where I had this group come to me and say, "We want you to be the CTO of the new bank, of this new bank." And I was like, "Really?" And at the same time, I thought I was getting, I thought I was going to be open data standards liaison for the government, and there's some other stuff going on, so I didn't jump on it immediately. And so, but I started thinking about it, and I was working with them on what that kind of architect 
architecture might look like. It was about the mutual ownership of data. And so what happens is you're banking with a with a bank and um, you mutually own that data with the bank um, and it's an equitable relationship. And then what happens is you go to the bank and you go, Hey, I want a loan. And the bank goes, okay, well, I've got two years worth of data on you, but I need more than that to be able to give you a loan. You know, do you want to give me this data? And so you go and you give them a ton of data, uh, way more than you would normally give. And so they go through the data and they profile you and they go, okay, well, we're willing to loan you, you know, $45,000. Would you like for us to sell it for you? And at that point, what happens is the bank then goes and um, since it mutually owns it, it goes out to these different companies and says, we have a profile that looks like this. How much is that contact information worth to you? They bid on it. Um, The bank then sits there, takes the bids to you. You choose what you accept, and then you split the proceeds of it half and half. And it also has this nice thing where um, your data that goes as a contacts to, like, say, a car dealership, Um, the car dealership is not allowed to resell that data. And if it does, it's not just you coming after it for reselling the data like a lot of privacy arrangements are. It's the bank coming after them if they um, abuse your data. So it ends up being a way to bank your information as money. And then also at that time, now suddenly you can sit there and say, this information that's taken from me has X amount of value, which like kind of changes a whole bunch of stuff. So that was the basic premise between Open Bank. It was really an open data piece that people could understand what was the consequences were of this this kind of under the hood stuff that's going on about right. how this institution learns about you, which is really more and more how our economy runs. I mean, the internet's economy runs to a great degree on clickstream uh, income, much more so than display advertising. And yep. most people aren't really conscious of that. The Wall Street Journal did a couple pieces. Julia Angwin did earlier this year that got a lot of attention because it sort of made this clear to people. And they were like, oh, my God, I had no idea this was happening. Um, but it's true. It's very hard to know what they know about you and how they found it out. Yeah, untangling that or disentangling that is hard. Mm-hmm. Comes the, from the other everywhere. thing that, that I liked about it was the idea of um, – replacing the the credit scoring rules with um, something that was actually documented and, and sort of critiquable in the way that cryptography and open source things are critiquable. And transparent. Right. And transparent. Right. Because no one well, really so- understands how those credit scores are made, and there's, what, three of, three of them, if not four? <laughs> Excuse me, if not four? It's ridiculous. Well, one of the funny things about this is when I was asked to come and talk about that idea was at the, um, the Aspen Institute did a think tank. And the um, CEO and CTO of Experian and Equifax were there, and Andrew Nash was there from PayPal, and the senior vice president of Bank of America, and the senior vice president of AT&T, and all those different ones were there. And it was kind of funny in regards to agencies loved it um, because of the fact that uh, they wanted a better way of going through and validating the data and allowing people to open the data but still have control over it. Because they don't have a good way of going through right. many times and validating the data. And that, unless so, you go in, unless I go in and go through 12 hoops to correct it, mm-hmm. which most people don't do, I assume, right? Right. So how, what, what role does tumbling have in a world where all this, it's like, there's all this data whooshing around. It's kind of like your bloodstream. <laughs> like you don't really pay attention to it till you're cut and your blood is kind of pouring out of your arm. I mean, most people aren't focused on this, although you are, Salona. And so how do we keep um, an economy and sites that are running based on this kind of flow of data everywhere as though it's the truth about us 
how do we keep it human? How do we keep it human? What's the role of, um, of people in making this happen? Cause you are just sort of decided to get yourself involved and you're obviously a natural born Tumblr, but I would think it would be very easy to get enamored with the idea that you could make all this stuff automate itself because you talk about data and that just makes people's eyes get wide and talk about automating and scaling things. See, see, I think eventually we will all have a way of doing a federated identity system. And so what happens is, um, and this is like, why do you think we'll have that budget project? Why do you think? Because we're already starting to do that. Like when people, you know, for example, don't believe who I am. I sit there and I go Google Salona. It's like, what? And I'm like, go Google, go look at me on Facebook, go look at me on Twitter, go see who's a friend of yours, who's a friend of mine and talk to them. It's like, just go validate it right now, person to person, and then make up your own mind. Um, it's so funny because I actually got a ton of work in the gaming industry just when Orchid was getting started in 04, um, where, you know, not just the Brazilians got on Orchid during that time frame, but the gaming industry did as well. Orchid, for those of you who aren't core insiders, so we know we have such cool inside old school peeps on the show and listening, but Orchid was a social, still is, right? A social network. It still is. It's extremely popular in Brazil. In Brazil. It's like David Hasselhoff. It's the David Hasselhoff of social networks. Um, and Google owns it. <laughs> David Hasselhoff of social networks. That's awesome. This is what I do on this show is I just name things of technology bizarre crap. <laughs> That's my little contribution. Uh, the, hardly, but uh, we'll let you own that piece. It's not the only thing. Oh, it's the the quirky, weird thing. Okay, so, so Solano, we've got um, – you're an Orkit. You're doing all this gaming work and sort of interrupted your – and what happened is for me to get additional gaming work, people would sit there and say references. And I'm like, oh, instead of references, go on Orkut, see who's friends of mine, and ask them. I got every single contract I ever went in for when I was doing that because of the fact so you- that they could go in there. They could see the high-ranking people that I was friends with who they also connected to would ask them. And, yeah, I worked with Sloan on this project, this part, this project. She was great. So, the, so the work comes from people. So how do we make the world that this data is is propping up also be about people. How do, how do you get people who are all focused on data as business to think about serving human needs and making the data support that instead of, and you, you were starting to say it's because you think we're going to have this universal identifier and there's a right. relationship between those two things. What is that? Well, see what I saw doing for the um, transparent federal budget project is if you sat there and saw Salona going in and annotating one piece of the federal budget, how would you decide to believe my annotation or not? And I decided that the way that you could do that is you could sit there and look at my profile and sit there and say, oh, Salona's a legislative liaison for the ACLU. She's been a legislative liaison for EFF. She was on the board of directors of EFF Austin. She started the League of Technical Voters. She started Citability. Oh, these are the different friends are in common. And you could actually have an algorithm in the back if you've also gone and created an in-depth profile that can tell you the percentage chances that you're going to agree with me based off of our profiles. Well, that doesn't that just mean you share a sense of reality? Is that yeah. true? It does because the thing is the problem that I was having with doing especially politics is what's a fact? You know, there's people out there who believe that intelligent right. design is a fact, but there's people out there who do. And how can I filter for that sort of thing? And this was a good way that I thought that I could filter for it. So I have two questions for you about that. So one thing, um, 
I don't know which one's the easier one to ask first, but one one thing that I worry about with this is, yes, I want a federated um, identity, but I, I need but I need to be in control of when I want to be associated with all that stuff and when I don't. Because let's say of all those projects you listed, one of those you you was more of a private. It was more steampunky, and you didn't want it connected to the piece that was annotated in government. So you know, to me, that's the real hook of why it's important for us to be in control of our identities and and our, have a single federated identity that puts the user in control of it correct so it's not just it's not just the oh on facebook you know let's use facebook you know login for everything so people know you're who you are and you're not anonymous online because that's just one one filter and it's not controlled by me it's controlled by facebook Right, right, right. No, I definitely do not want that. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to. I, I know you didn't. I know you didn't want that. I just wanted to be clear because it, it's it's not that we want all the things that we do online to be connected all the time. It's that we want we want to have control over which things we're associated with it or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, and that's my second. Like- okay, finish up, Deb, and then I've got to follow up with a, an Andrew question. Go ahead, Deb's got to follow up. And then my other question was, this all sounds really great, but I seem to think that the, there are 20 different organizations focusing on this, and that's what I worry about. So, you know, there's, there's I won't name all the organizations who are focused on identity and all that. So how is it going to actually play itself out in the, you know, who is going to be the, the federator of this identity? Well, see, I don't think it should be a single fed, um When I mean a federation, I don't mean a single entity giving out an identity. Uh, that's not what I meant. I mean, in the actual old school thing in regards to identity, where you have multiple shards of identity all over the place and you gather them together for different contexts. So, for example, for me, is I have many shattered pieces of identity all over the internet. Right. Um, I do not want Burning Man <laughs> and pictures of me running around topless suddenly appearing when I'm sitting right. here talking about something in regards to legislation. You know, it's inappropriate. People can find it other ways, but it doesn't belong in this context. And, are, uh, and, so, and all the organizations that are kind of focusing on this issue are interacting with each other so that they understand the same architecture around this. Yes. I kind of know some of these answers, but I'm trying to be really plain about it. No, I no, think, no, thank you. I, I need that often. So whether so, it's the Internet Identity Workshop stuff or the personal data ecosystem or activity stream people or all these different projects around the net, there mm-hmm. is – what we're trying to get at is at least a, sim- a single architecture that, that puts me as a non-techie user in control of my data in a, in, a, in a usable, plainly understood way. You know, while there's 20 million groups trying to figure this out, Salona, didn't Facebook just go ahead and force it down everyone's throat anyway? We all have a Facebook identity. We're stuck with it. Yes, we are stuck with it. Um, but for how long? Because at some point, people are going, you know, I've had this argument with other friends of mine in regards to Facebook. I'm, I don't believe that Facebook is as mortal as everyone else thinks it is. Oh, I'm with you. Um, I know they're going to die. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, we're it's all, just, it, it, when, when grandparents we're started joining today. and things of that nature, it's like, yeah, people will move. Um, everybody thought IBM was immortal. Everybody thought Microsoft was immortal. You know, all, all these different things. Um, I don't actually believe that. Uh, not exactly to the level that a lot of Not do. even Lady Gaga is immortal. That's exactly. Right. Even though she's only going to about to be 25. I know. That shocked <laughs> me. That shocked <gasps> me. I was like, oh, my God, I hate you. Anyway. <laughs> like, 
I love Salona. That's why you and I have the same boat. Like, what do you mean you're not even 25? Oh, and you're so self, self-assured. Anyway, that's it. Yes. Go ahead. What was, it? what was Andrew's question, Heather? Sorry. And, okay, so here, here's a really important question. Then we're going to get to tips for tumblers after this. So this is the last year, and I have a lot of time with Salona. You've worked a lot of political on a lot of political stuff, and whether it's political or not, I'm thinking like whether it's a group like EFF or government stuff. How do you deal with people who just violently disagree with one another? How do you connect between people who have, you know, incredible disagreement? Uh, I went and did a lot of stuff in regards to dialogue and deliberation. And the funny thing about when I was a legislative liaison for EFF and the ACLU is in Texas, I became the ACLU's person to talk to Republicans on technical issues. And on eight out of my 10 issues, all I had to do was go and talk to them. And I was able to get them the issues resolved that way, uh, which shocks everyone. Uh, in regards so to you, that. So you tumbled, you went and talked to them personally. Yeah. But and so what is it, and, what was it about you? The, what is it that about you? So we're, here we're segueing already into tips for tumblers. What are the personality traits or the things you're doing? <laughs> yeah. I, thanks Myers. If you want to write some music for tips for tumblers, we would love that. But I feel like it should have a xylophone in it. Do, 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 do. <laughs> tips for tumblers. Um, so, so what is it that you're doing that lets you talk to someone who's like intelligent design is it? And, and, and the next person says, no, Jesus Christ himself created the computer. And then the next person is like flying spaghetti monster is all there is. And you know, how do you, how do you connect with all of these people who are coming at something completely differently? I go to value systems and what the, one of the funny things that I, that I think is interesting is we really actually, I think have, are, have very basic similar value systems and there's always common ground there. Why? And if Why? I what do you mean? Get, um, you know, doing to neighbors as, you know, doing to others as you would do unto yourself, you know, all those different things and a whole bunch of the different religions, they all have that on some level. Um, and so going through and looking at that and looking That's at your- and always, yeah, always going into every single talk, knowing that no one, very few people ever view themselves as being a bad person. They always view that what they're trying to do is try is do the best for somebody. So you assume their best intentions. You assume that they're trying to make something good happen. Exactly. So you, you, you're like, I'm with you. What is this thing you're doing? So then you try to figure out what their goal is. What is it you're trying yes. to make happen? So you're like, okay, yep. one, I assume I'm with you. So what is it in you that lets you walk up to someone who's like, I hate women, that you might see as because of their positions as supposedly being anti-choice, anti-woman, anti-gay, whatever it is, or anti-net uh, neutrality. What lets you just go be with that person? Why do you not get caught up in being angry at them or assuming they suck or whatever it is? Well, um, Heather, on, it's kind of funny is that um, I can only do this on technology. And that's simply because of the fact that I have this basic belief in technology is technology. And I don't think that there is one judgment call, you know, the whole, you know, religious argument of proprietary versus open source. Um, uh, I, I can do that. Um, I was actually asked to do that for pro-choice and I stated that I could not, um, because I could not go and do the pro-choice thing and not get extremely upset and cry. 
And so I said, you know, I'll do this for you for technology, but on that one, I have to find something that, um, you know, I think we all have our limits <laughs> in regards to that. Um, and I think sometimes it's, it's better to find someone who doesn't necessarily have, um, that level of emotionality to go through and, and have those discussions. So it's a certain um, amount of, a certain amount of, um, removing your, you know, your emotional, not, I don't want to say removing, but uh, emotional neutrality around an issue helps you to have empathy for the other side. So if it was something that was really close to you, it's too hard to do. Or yes. it's something, I don't know, they're close to you or something that doesn't upset you anymore. Like for example, yeah, that's better. Uh, word, yeah, Cause I would say like queer rights are very important to me. I've done a lot of work on, um, lots of LGBT issues, but I'm on those issues, like in my own life at a point where I don't get so upset about it. Like you could, you could be as angry. Like, uh, when we did a quality camp, we had a bunch of pastors come up to tell us lots about what was unnatural about gay people and so on. And I can totally talk to them. It doesn't mean I agree with them, but it doesn't upset me at all. Right. When you're, when you're, yeah, right. That's either upset or not. It's not as I guess close. Both words work, but it's a really important point that you're making, Solana. Like you have to be in that right place to not get rattled by it. Otherwise you can't connect. You You can't hear them. So then step one is you're not emotionally going to get triggered by the thing. Whatever. Step two, I heard you say is then you go, you assume this person thinks they're trying to make the world better. And you start with the assumption that you're both glad about that. And then three is you go for what is their goal. And then once you get to that, then what do you do? Um, it, a lot of times it's just a lot of research in regards to those different discussions. Uh, as I like to sit there and say, instead of Solomon cutting the orange in half, it's figuring out, hey, you want orange juice and you need orange peel. Um, and dividing things out that way um, to try and find the win-win solutions. Um, <clears throat> and I was really surprised a lot of times as to how much I could uh go in and find those win-win solutions. The only time I couldn't were, you know, cause eight out of 10, I could, the other two were corporate influence. One was Southwestern Bell was trying to ban muni Wi-Fi, and they had over 169 lobbyists. Um, wow. yeah, I, that was actually, um, with a Dean 11 and, um, another gal here in town named Sonia. And so, um, ACLU, we had three lobbyists, which were not lobbyists, but advocates and they had 169, but yet we won. Um, I think think it's kind of funny because basically my my uncle's a football coach, (laughs) Um, which is where we got a city manager from a small Texas town that my grandparents live in who came in and talked to the representative who is the head of the committee and he killed a bill in his committee. But um, the last one was corporate influence and I couldn't win against that. And that's the one that I lost on. So I only lost on one out of my 10. Um, But yeah. That's a good batting average. <laughs> I'd say. I love this. Krinsky Mark said, what survives longer, Facebook or Lady Gaga? That's a good thing to start with her tumble tips. <laughs> I'm going to say Gaga, not even a question because AOL, what, nine years? I give Facebook maybe two years plus AOL's run. I mean, Kevin, like, look how say? long Madonna's gone, man. Yeah, yeah but her, her, her prime was over a while. She's not relevant anymore. Kevin, what are you saying? Gaga or Facebook, what goes longer? Oh, Lady Gaga will outlast Facebook. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it was amusing to me that you had to explain to people what Orchid is um, because Sloan was talking about 2004 when that was the big social networking site that everyone cared about. For um, a nanosecond. 2004. 2004. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. 
I actually thought it's it was Lady Gaga. Even a glimmer in the on, on mainstream radio's eye. She was in a Catholic high, in high school, school on the Upper East Side. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, turning twenty-five this month. Exactly. She was. She actually probably just graduating high school. Uh, too funny. And okay, so Deb, Gaga or Facebook? Uh, this is like a no-brainer. Gaga. It's funny. <laughs> oh, we had Lady Gaga on this show. Yeah, right. I, I, I love it. And we're going to say you're the Google of musicians. No, just kidding. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay, tips. Uh, Salona, you've given us a lot of insight about how you're doing what you do. Other things that you think are really useful. Think think about things that you're – it's tough because we want to maybe notice things that you just do automatically. Like why does it occur to you to get – um, when you're saying I'm going to bring in like an antique ice cream social and, and punk rockers to yell at coders, why does it occur? Like what's going on when you're saying I'm going to have a fun treat? Why do you, have you always done that? Why do you want to do that? Is that a, a thing I that's always do it. together? Um, Hi. one of the things that I notice with nonprofits is I always claim that they can't ever get press. I've never had that problem. <laughs> I always have press and they always claim, Oh, I can't ever get volunteers. I always have volunteers. And the reason for all that is because of creating, making sure that, you know, things are fun. You know, life needs to be fun. And so it's easy for me to get a couple of volunteers to come in and make things fun. And then once you do that, then you get all the other volunteers that are coming in who aren't necessarily always doing, you know, the fun stuff, but it makes it more of a scene it bonds everybody more of a happening thing to do. Um, it's, you know, I I listened to a lot of nonprofits who sit there and go, nope, you know, oh, that huge bitch session at South by Southwest, um, where they were bitching about where are all the techies? Why can't nonprofits hire techies? And I'm like, because you moan at people. It's like you moan at people and you try guilt trips, you know, um, earlier someone was talking about their mom. That's like an ongoing, I'm giving a keynote at Future of Jewish Nonprofits Monday. And honestly, I've almost never met a nonprofit that didn't whine. It's kind of the, it's just sort of how they operate, period. And it's a problem because the the network world is going to, is going to make life harder for them operating as well. If they, especially if they don't know how to get people involved the way that you're tumbling, you know, you're, you're tumbling Salona as though everything isn't a giant problem. The world isn't against you, right? There's something else in there which relates to the tip that I was going to bring in tonight, which is... And now it's time for Deb's tip. Deb's yeah. tip. tip. Deb's tip. Deb's tip. I know. We need theme song for Deb's double dip of the day. It has to be that three beat bong, 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 bong. Uh, you don't put yourself in the center of it. So, you know, realizing that you are not... Your ego has to be put aside. We talk about this a lot in, in Tunnel Vision, but the, what you were just talking about is you want to make it fun for everybody. So it's mm-hmm. not about you. So, you know, you do that naturally, but most people don't think about that. It's not about you getting up there and making a big speech and, and, and catalyzing the crowd and saying, okay, we're all going to code. And, you know, it's not, it's not just about that. And I think that's the problem that a lot of nonprofits and bureaucratic organizations have, right? What's the rule? The, the, the smaller the bureaucrat, the bigger their power struggle, or the the least you're paid, the more you're, and that's the where the whining comes from, because you have this expectation of getting more attention and more stuff, then you're not getting what you deserve. But the minute you sort of say, "Take myself out of the equation and let's make this fun for everybody," that's a big piece of the pie. Not everyone can do that, but it's necessary, right? Fun oh. catalyzes fun. 
Yeah, it's it, exactly. Well, it's it, I don't have a problem recruiting whenever because not that, but at this point, everybody knows that if I'm throwing it together, it's going to be fun. Right. Right. So fun, basically, figure out how to have fun. I mean, but in order to have fun, you have to not take it like it's the most serious freaking thing that ever happened. That was a great tip, Debs. We're gonna keep we're gonna keep these ones. This is gonna be a great um, blog post. Right? This is chock full of useful stuff, Kevin. Tumble tip for Kevin. Do do do. Going back to the nonprofits thing, the thing that that struck me about them um, was that. They decide they need a business model, and so they try and behave like businesses, except they behave like their own worst caricature of what a business is like, and they become rapacious and send you junk mail all the time and um, you know, har- harass you to death that way. So my, my tip for the, for, for the non-profits is before you think about the business model, think about the pleasure model. Think how you can make people want to be part of your organization, which is exactly what Salona just said, rather than um, once you've got them, how can you milk them for the most money? And that's, that's the thing that upsets people about nonprofits. You need to make the people happy that they're, they're part of the organization and proud of it. Which comes back to tumble tip number one for me, which is, I've said it a billion times before, give before you receive. Right. <laughs> Cookies, whatever it is, give something. And don't give it. And go, now you got to give me something back. No, just think about the pleasure of how fun it is to give something to each person, like some way of, of putting something out there. That's part of going first, right? If, if you're going to tell your story first, you're doing it in a way of saying, I'll take the emotional hit. I'm going to be vulnerable first. Here we go. Here's what happened to me. Or here's a cookie or here's something new or here I'm going to open this thing up and, and say the thing that's hard for me about myself. That... That, that's just like, that's like the, if I had to give just one tumble tip, that would be it. It's absolutely necessary. And that's, it, that's the weird inversion that Deb's talking about. Cause when you do it that way, even if you talk sort of about yourself, you're not doing it for you. You're doing it intentionally to help make it easier for someone else. Mm-hmm. That, that's the one thing I learned from doing the show's performance uh, and, art and solo shows big time. And if you want to make it very concrete, The Talmud says that if you're hosting a party, it is your responsibility to stay in the tablecloth first. (laughs) Get it? (laughs) Oh, I make typos on all my wikis. Dead silence. It's your responsibility to put yourself out there and be vulnerable. And the the metaphor is you got to spill the wine first so that your guests feel comfortable. You get trashed first is what she's saying. Well, or you make <laughs> you stain the tablecloth, or break a plate, or do something first. That's and, it. And Keith Casey in the chat room, Keith from Austin, is saying oh, very yeah. succinctly, beautifully, build a relationship with a person, not their wallet. And you could extend that to Facebook, but which it's not doing. Build relationships between people, not links for nodes. So you could put up clickstream and page view. Build real relationships between um, between people. That's. That's what this is all. Yes, Myers, it is. It is a figure ground reversal. It's how do you take this thing that seems to make you the center of it and use a thing about you to open it up for other people. It's totally changed for me how I viewed uh, comedy. I had somebody um, today say, I was asking people online, what book do you want to see me write as I'm contemplating things? And he's like, I want to see more about your um, your transition and from stand-up comic to doing interactive performance to tumbling, how things became more and more fluidly about the room and everybody else and uh you know it kind of mirrors what's happened online and the mm-hmm. economic change right it, the, the more things are platformed uh 
the better. The more things are about helping other people share what matters to them, that makes things more sustainable and grow. And, and really, Flickr did that as well as anything. So um, now we're saying Mark Krinsky. Yeah, we got. It's been great to have you here today. He's also joined us. He works on on X uh, X Prize. Prize. And we think you should do a show on that because it's an amazing totally. incentive for uh, to get people to go to the. What is it to build the first? vehicle to go to outer space like independently that's not the only thing they do to be fair but that's the big one they're known for it's still freaking cool though (laughs) it's it's super cool so it's it's not a typical nonprofit. so that that's what's interesting anything that's that's coming outside of the way we typically think of corporation nonprofit usually is a very tumultuous kind of thing right it's how do you come with a much more fluid kind of morphe networked way of making something happen so it doesn't feel so like rigid and it's really got people engaged in it and you're not, and you're kind of pulled into it themselves as opposed to you having to go out and schlep people, right? By hardcore traditional marketing. So this has been Salona, a delight, a delight. <laughs> you have uh, an incredible number of like everybody is saying here, everyone in Austin knows you. She's known beyond the realm of Austin. You are, but that's part of how you do what you do, right? You you yeah. like to know people. It's true. I love people. You're that's a people sort of person. person. <laughs> <laughs> the Q- person geek you'll ever find. <laughs> Q, Q, Barbara Streisand. Mm-hmm. I can't. I won't. Do it. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Leah Michelle it. <laughs> Leah Michelle it. Yeah. Some people say that people, people who need. That's my, that's, that's mild. not bad. That's your, I'm that's trying to do babs. That's bad. She's in that's my bad. range. I'm trying to babs it. Yeah. Um, not, and I can't soar into the stratosphere. Like she, no, I'm, I'm down there. I'm more, um, Adina Menzel. I'm down there in the low. Uh, uh-huh. Anyway, we're geeking out on the musical theater. Probably shouldn't. Chip. It's this is probably the technology. It goes to Broadway. All right, people. It's let's get Seth. Red- oh, let's get Seth Rudexy. Rudetsky. He tumbles Broadway. I want Seth Rudetsky. Uh, okay, that'd be a good idea. It will be very different than X Plane. Let's get those people together. Hey, I've started following Josh Molina on Twitter. He's a tumbler. He's funny. okay. Now <laughs> we're we're almost doing post show delightness. Yeah, delightness. we are. We are. We are. Okay. Listen, if you, this, this kind of fun chattiness, if you hang out afterwards, you come join us live in the chat room with all the delightful people and you can try to meet other folks You actually live in your town. Um, come and join us a little bit early before the show or after at TumbleVision, T-U-M-M-E-L-V-I-S-I-O-N dot TV. And uh, we'd love to see you here every Thursday, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, you can check out all of our archive shows with Really, we think the best guests. Uh, on iTunes, please review the show, people. This is a request. Please go there. Give us a review. We've been getting some amazing spontaneous love on the Twitter recently from all kinds of people. Yes. And Someone you know today We're just said start- he talked tumbling with, with a bunch of CEOs at a meeting. Like, it's spreading. Dad's where we Yeah, if you want to give us a little pithy sort of why I like Tumblevision, we're going to have we'll put a page up on our site with all your brilliant quotes. A- including what you think we can make better. We'll Absolutely. Put that up too. 
Matthew Anderson in uh, in New York says, if you're working in media and not listening to the television podcast, you're missing out. And none of us even know him. So we did not pay him to say that. He just, <laughs> this complete person we don't know actually said it. It's incredible, Salona. And we didn't send punk rockers to yell at him with cupcakes or anything. We could. Maybe we should do that. Can we? We yeah. can send little, little like, like singing food. telegrams with food to people. Once you guys, once we figure out some kind of sponsor or whatever we're going to do. Goodness here, yeah. that's I want to like spend it on people. How do we get money to spend on people instead that's of because that's what we want to do. That's what we want to do. What we want to do. We want money so we can give away stuff to our fans. Okay, let's get Mr. Ubuntu. We're going to Ubuntu all of you. Somebody yeah. ask him so we yeah. can send you all snacks. That's what we'd like. Well, to if you're do. doing the X Prize, he's a big fan. Yeah, yeah bring it next week if you want to check it so out. Worth. That's right, Mark. We'll start a new X Prize for the biggest fans of Tumble Fish. <laughs> Okay. Uh, next next week's guest, and is this a mistake for me to tell you? Because next week's guest may not be clear yet. Uh, upcoming, we have definitely Andy Carvin. Oh. It's going to be the 21st of April. I would mark that one down. Who is basically <laughs> frog leaped over all of the longtime journalists on NPR and become the tumbling journalist to the world from the middle, you know, Middle East, Wisconsin, wherever. He's just been... Kind of, he's kind of an amazing, amazing guy. I, I wouldn't want to miss that one. He knows more about how to make connections with people you don't know in other countries to bring you news from from people who are having first person experience of it than I think anyone at this point, which is pretty exciting. So uh, we hope we'll see you next week. I'll be in uh, Seattle very shortly. I'll be performing at the Get Lit Festival in. Uh, early April and then doing unpresenting the 17th in Seattle. There are a couple of, um, of tickets still left at unpresenting.com where I'll teach you to tumble. And I think speaking at work camp, Seattle, trying to help spread the goodness so that we can have, um, more tumbling built into an open source platform. Salona, anything you want to let people know about that's coming up? No, I'm organizing some codathons. Codathon.com, code-a-thon.com will next month or so. Okay. And uh, Kevin and Debs, any any projects or speaking you want to let people know about? Nah. <laughs> it was easy. Next week, we'll have Thomas Knoll, the tumbler of Zappos. So check that out. And uh, Tony Comstock and Mark Krinsky and Sam and Patterson and everybody who's been here, Myers and Zeno, as always, great to have you. Hope you'll join us again next week on television. Thank you, people. Tumble Vision is produced in Baltimore, Maryland by the wonderful Andrew Hazlitt of the new modern.net. See you next Woo-hoo! week. Woo-hoo!